Hello and welcome to The Dirt. Thank you for joining. My name is Brian Powell. I'm your host. As you may know, on this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, particularly here in North Carolina. We are broadcasting from the studio of historic WSHA-FM in Raleigh, North Carolina, where you can listen to us live on 88.9 FM. If you're in Rocky Mount, tune in to 102.1 and in Fayetteville on 102.3 FM. As always, you can stream us on the show online at WSHAFM.org, and you can check the show out on SoundCloud and Twitter at The Dirt FM, where you can download older episodes and engage in conversations in between our shows. Uh, we have a great show for you today. Um, the legislature's back again this week, so we'll have a panel of policy experts on to discuss what environmental issues might pop up on Jones Street this week. We will also be talking about a persistent threat to our water that tends to receive very little attention from the media. We'll be talking with the Upper Noose Riverkeeper, Matthew Starr, who will give you the information you need to spot it. In fact, he's joining us in the studio right now. Matthew, hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get to you, uh, I want to start off with a discussion of the infamous Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Uh, plans to construct a fracked gas pipeline through Virginia and North Carolina are underway. Uh, as many people know, and opposition to the idea is very fierce. Uh, many people are familiar with the environmental, potential environmental impacts of a pipeline like this. Um, but like the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota, uh, the project is being planned without input from Native communities who are going to be impacted by the pipeline's construction. Um, so just to discuss this, we have on the show Dr. Ryan Emanuel. He is an associate professor in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at NC State University. He is also a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina and serves on the Environmental Justice Committee of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs. Dr. Emanuel, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. So I've seen the planned route for this pipeline, um, and I have to say it, it looks as though... Uh, they, they found the portions of North Carolina with the highest concentrations of native communities and like almost just traced a line through it. I mean, the, the, it, it's, it's kind of 13% of the people who live within one mile of the proposed path are Native American. 13%. For context, for listeners, um, Native American people comprise 1.2% of the entire state's population. So that's, that's pretty striking. Um, just... Uh, on a fundamental level, can you tell us a little bit about how they chose this route? Yeah, so the developers of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline claim to have chosen the route after months or years of extensive uh, planning and legwork. Um, but it's obvious from your intro that that legwork didn't include interactions with Native people or even any decision-making tools that let them know that there were large populations of Native Americans or other minorities living along the pipeline route. Right. There's, I mean, like you said, there are many stages of review and discussion and what um, they're supposed to be anyways. Um, and one of those stages is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, which is tasked with issuing an environmental impact statement related to this pipeline. Um, they concluded that if certain mitigation efforts were made, the impact would be, quote, less than significant. Uh, is that an assessment that is shared by Native communities along the route? No. I, I can say w with certainty that, that that is not shared with many Native communities. And this is really where I became involved seriously with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. So in December, when the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission released its draft environmental impact uh, statement, I took a look at it and I was struck by the conclusion that there would be no disproportionate impacts on poor or minority communities. And just knowing a little bit about this region, I'm from eastern North Carolina, uh, I knew that there was no way this could be so. And as a scientist, I took the tools that I had at my disposal, uh, which were uh, demographic tools and population estimates and things like this, and I reran uh, the numbers from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's work. And I found that, that that statement really isn't true. There is a disproportionate impact, particularly on Native Americans in North Carolina. So where do you think that came from? It uh, came from poor decision-making tools. So when I took a close look at the um, environmental justice assessment that was part of this environmental assessment, uh, it was pretty clear that they were uh, 
they were not proceeding in a way that would really pass muster in even a basic statistics course. So I pointed this out in, in technical comments to FERC uh, back in April. And then when I didn't get any feedback from FERC, I went ahead and drafted this up as a, uh, as a, a short piece that was eventually published in Science Magazine last month. I read that, and that was um, very, very informative, very good. Um, so uh, get a little bit into more detail about where they went wrong on this, on this analysis, um, who was or was not consulted here. And um, more than that, I, I want to I get to, um, you know, we talk a lot on the show about environmental justice and equal justice. Um, and for many communities of color, um, you know, it's, it is a matter of um, resources um, or attention is distributed very unequally. Um, for Native communities, there's a whole other level to this, uh, and that's the concept of sovereignty. Um, and I, I'd love to hear more about that issue and, and what it means to these communities to be able to make decisions about the projects coming through their land um, and why it's important. Yeah, so this is this is a good point. The Native communities in North Carolina are organized as uh, sovereign nations. So it's important to remember this, that the tribes in North Carolina are officially recognized by the state. Uh, they have duly elected governments uh, that represent the interests of those tribes. And we also have to go back and remember that um, North Carolina is created from lands that were stolen from the ancestors of these people. And so it's important to acknowledge that uh, even though these tribes don't have extensive land holdings today, uh, they have historic territories that are uh, well-defined, and these territories extend over large portions of eastern North Carolina. And there are uh, tribal communities distributed over many counties, including the counties impacted by the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And so when we think of something like tribal sovereignty, we're really um, asking the state government and the federal government to acknowledge our, our ability to make decisions for ourselves, our, our elected government's ability to make decisions for the tribal communities that, that those governments represent. And just for listeners who are unfamiliar, um, what are, you know, beyond just these kinds of environmental impact assessments and, and whatnot, um, what are the challenges that uh, Lumbee Nation and, and some of these other tribes are facing in terms of recognition and having um, the kind of power that you're talking about? Um, what kind of what is their status? Yeah, so the tribes in North Carolina are recognized by the state, but with the exception of the Eastern Band of Cherokee, who are located in the mountains, uh, these tribes don't have full federal recognition. The Lumbee, my tribe, is in a unique case because we are still governed by this 1950s era federal legislation that acknowledges us as native people uh, but denies us access to statutes and laws that, that protect us in cases like this. So these tribes uh, in eastern North Carolina are, are doubly vulnerable. They're, they're underrepresented and undervoiced uh, minority communities. Uh, but in terms of Native nations, they also lacked uh, statutory protections that feder fully federally recognized tribes have. So it's a very precarious position. What can they do to achieve that? Uh, the tribes are voicing their, uh, their opinions on this, and they have recently met with state regulators and with uh, federal agencies, including the Environmental Protection Agency and the Federal Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, uh, to explain their displeasure at being left out of the early stages of the planning process. And so I think that, that speaking um, together and in unison, all these tribes came together at one meeting and they all spoke unanimously about uh, being displeased with, with this process. So I think that's a really powerful first step. And it really supersedes uh, issues of recognition at the federal level or not and says, you know, we are sovereign peoples and we want to be heard. We want our voices to be heard, and um, we don't want to be an afterthought in the last third of the planning process. So beyond just the, um, a, a lack of voice, um, what are, if you know them, some of the, the concerns about the pipeline um, and its construction and the placement um, throughout the, the state of North Carolina? So some elders at this meeting that I attended spoke about um, uh, burials and sacred sites that are not well documented. 
and the state has an obligation to make sure that these archaeological and cultural resources are protected or conserved during construction. But at present, there's not a very strong relationship between the, the State Historic Preservation Office and uh, the knowledge that's locally held by these tribes. So that's a big concern. And tribes may also have their own opinions about what sustainable development looks like in their communities. And if they're not part of the discussion on whether or not we even need a pipeline like this, it really, um, it really prohibits their ability to uh, develop their own communities in a way that they think is responsible and culturally appropriate. I think we've seen that that is kind of a recurring theme on this show is the lack of communication channels between various communities that are most impacted by um, a lot of large projects or a lot of actions from state government. Um, a comment period just ended last Friday related to this pipeline. Um, it needs to be certified now under the Clean Water Act to move forward, is that correct? That's correct. Um, so where does it go beyond that? Is there any way at this point to kind of slow or stop the project or, um, or are there more opportunities for um, native communities to voice um, you know, their concerns if they have any related to this? So a couple of things. One, at the federal level, because FERC has lacked a quorum for so long, even though they've issued their final environmental impact statement, they haven't yet issued a record of decision. So there is no um, uh, closure yet at the federal level. And my understanding is that state regulators are now uh, attempting to speak to FERC about this issue of tribal communities being left out of the uh, early process of planning this pipeline. And then at the state level, uh, tribal leaders are continuing to work with state regulators as they uh, weigh all the public comments, weigh the scientific evidence, and begin to form their uh, decision about these water quality certifications. So there is, a, a so far, a productive ongoing dialogue between state regulators and tribal leaders. From a um, putting your, your science hat on, and, and you're an expert in natural resources, um, are there, what to you are the environmental concerns, just to rehash it for people who are unfamiliar with that? In my opinion, the biggest environmental concern with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is climate change. So as we continue to build out fossil fuel infrastructure across the United States, we're pushing ourselves more towards uh, an unsustainable future in terms of global warming. And that really concerns me. North Carolina, especially Eastern North Carolina, is gonna see uh, significant climate warming, particularly in summers. And another report came out this summer uh, showing that North Carolina or the U.S. as a whole could lose 1% of its GDP per year by the end of this century for every degree of climate warming. And so if we use that number for North Carolina, we're talking about $4 billion in losses per year as a result of climate change, impacts on agriculture, human health, industry, things like that. So by the end of the century, we could be spending the cost of one Atlantic Coast pipeline per year for every degree of climate warming that we don't work to stop right now. Well, but surely the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is going to bring in way, way more money and more economic development and, and that, right? I mean, this is gonna be a boon to the state. It's gonna surely outweigh those concerns. There's a lot of talk about that, but I've, I've yet to see many details about what types of industries might be coming to the state or where these uh, economic engines would be located. So um, is there any, we talked, I referenced a little bit about Standing Rock um, and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Has there been any kind of communication between Native communities there and Native communities here, kind of a sharing of information learned or lessons learned um, or strategy that this works or that works or anything? I mean, is there kind of a comparison there or no? Well, I will say that last fall, my tribe, the Lumbee, sent a formal contingent to Standing Rock. Uh, and stood in solidarity with the water protectors uh, in North Dakota. Uh, I don't know of any formal discussions between my tribe and, and tribes that are impacted by the Dakota Access Pipeline, but I think that that would be a good thing to see. Yeah. What other environmental concerns face Native communities in Eastern North Carolina? Well, one of the big concerns facing Eastern North Carolina today, and this goes for Native communities and all communities, is industrialized agriculture. So there, there are distinct air quality and water quality fingerprints associated with growing uh, poultry and swine. That's, a, that's a very scales. diplomatic way of saying that it smells like poop. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We've talked about that issue a little bit on this show um, and um, the impact that it's had on communities of color in, uh, in Eastern North Carolina, particularly. Um, so CAFOs have called them concentrated animal feeding operations for listeners. What, what else, what other issues? Well, so this is the big one, and this is one that concerns me and its rela potential relationship to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. So supposing this pipeline is built and we do bring new supplies of natural gas to eastern North Carolina, uh, are we going to see more intensification of the same type of um, industrialized agriculture that's been growing in the region over the past 20 to 30 years? And we have to ask ourselves, is this the kind of economic development that we want, given the problems with waste disposal, air quality and water quality associated with these barns and with the meat processing facilities that come with them. And I should add that, um, you know, we talk a little bit about climate change when it relates to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Um, one issue that some groups, uh, Clean Water for North Carolina, brought up last week uh, was the, the actual physical hazard of being within a blast zone um, of the pipeline if, if there were to be some sort of disaster. Yeah, and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline actually terminates in a historic Lumbee community called Prospect. And so this is, by some people's reckoning, the heart of the Lumbee community. And so there are lots of concerns about ending this major uh, interstate gas pipeline so close to a place that's so dear uh, to many people in my tribe. What can listeners do, if anything, to, um, to help the Native communities in North Carolina when it comes to this Atlantic Coast Pipeline fight? Well, one general thing is learn about us. Find resources, learn about the tribes in North Carolina, learn about the historical and present-day issues that they faced. And re related to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, even though the public comment period has closed, continue to contact and reach out to your legislators and your state regulators and express your opinions on this issue. Matthew, are you going to do that? Most definitely. I, um, in terms of, of being an advocate for fishable, swimmable, drinkable water, um, the, the conversation is never dead. So always, always fight for what's right. And I know that I've learned a, a considerable amount um, just from talking to you today and, and learning more about the Lumbee Tribe um, and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Um, we, we have a long ways to go to educate people um, and to get um, – everybody up to speed on on where they need to be um, unfortunately we've got to head to a break so i want to thank you very much dr Manuel, for being here i appreciate it Thanks. uh stay tuned for our next segment we're going to be joined by matthew Starr. he's going to stick around um, we're going to shine some light on a problem affecting many of the streams and creeks running through your neighborhoods right now and figure out why keeping them clean is just as important as keeping the news clean and some of these bigger bodies of water you are listening to The Dirt on WSHA-FM with expanded services on 102.1 in Rocky Mount and 102.3 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You can stream us on the internet at WSHAFM.org or on the TuneIn app on your smartphones. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Dirt. I want to spend a few minutes talking about a type of pollution you might not know much about. But it is everywhere, particularly surrounding new housing developments. And if you're in the triangle, you have definitely seen land being bulldozed and developed and houses being built. Um, where does all that upturned soil and dirt go? Here to talk about it is Matthew Starr, your Upper News Riverkeeper. Matthew, thank you for joining us. As always, thanks for having me. So we spend a lot of time on this show and in the environmental community at large talking about protecting our rivers, our lakes, our drinking water reservoirs. Uh, most of us, um, regular folks, are more likely to encounter streams and creeks and tributaries uh, in our daily lives. And keeping these waterways clean is and clean and healthy, that's a crucial part of keeping the noose and Falls Lake and these kinds of bigger bodies clean and healthy. Um, but there's a threat to these smaller bodies. I mean, it's a threat to the rivers too, but it's, yeah. a, it's also a big threat to these smaller bodies, and that's called sediment. Yeah. Uh, what is sediment pollution? Um, it's just pretty much a fancy way of saying too much dirt in the water. Now, we, we've spent a lot of time on past episodes talking about some, some really big issues, such as uh, industrial agriculture, threats from the General Assembly, 
um, nutrients. Gen X. Gen X. However, sediment, too much dirt in the water, is the number one pollutant of our waterways throughout the state. And when I talk about advocating and fighting for clean water, that fishable, swimmable, drinkable water in the Noose River, a lot of that work comes from the tributaries. So the small streams, the bigger streams, the creeks uh, flowing into the Noose throughout its 6,000 square mile river basin have to deal with protecting those streams from sediment. Sediment is what I like to call an umbrella pollutant, means it causes other issues. So it can lead to low oxygen levels. It can completely silt in a stream, meaning that if you go look at a healthy stream, you should see rocks and pebbles. Uh, the water should be pretty clear. Um, you should see um, lower level food chain species such as crawfish or um, microinvertebrates, those, those tiny things that the, that the smaller fish eat that the bigger fish eat the smaller fish. And so when that completely silts in, when all that sediment builds up on the bottom of these streams and creeks, well, it kills those. It, it kills that bottom level of the food chain. So I run, I run around the greenways that, mm -hmm. that go around Raleigh and, and I, in particularly along the Crabtree Creek Trail. Yes. Um, Crabtree Creek, it seems for the most part, um, clear uh the portions that i run by there are other issues with it in terms mm -hmm. of you know tires or trash or other things that people have just tossed in there um and, and it looks very different when it's been raining yes um so i mean is that is that the big issue if we're talking about sediment it, it and it's just dirt um it's not it's dirt not dirt. just dirt okay well <laughs> it, it's not just dirt but it, it's not the stuff that's already in the creek it's, Correct. It's it is coming from somewhere else. So it's coming I, from construction sites. And I yeah. and I suspect that when it rains, I mean the reason that the creek looks different when it rains is because the rain is washing stuff into the creek. Um, Correct. What? So what is it besides dirt, rocks, mud? You said silted in. What does that mean? Yeah. So so when it rains in, in the Piedmont, so in the in the Triangle, it's really easy to see when this pollution is occurring, because you'll see muddy water. Uh, that that chocolate milk, that that you know, just orange, um, muddy water running down the street into a storm drain um, that goes into a local stream or creek. That that storm drain does not go to a wastewater treatment facility, or it's just running into the creek itself, and and the creek will turn an orange color. That is not healthy. That is not good. That is uh, pollution. And, and for, list, for listeners having a hard time visualizing that, I think they can visit your Twitter page and oh, see, yeah. some, see some photos that you've taken kind of out in the field of yep. some of these um, streams. It, is, it does. It looks, it looks like chocolate milk. It does yeah. not look like water at all. It's disgusting. It, it's, it's not what a creek or stream or, or river should look like. Yeah, you can check me out on Facebook or Twitter at Upper Noose RK. Um, and there's just too many pictures of... of polluted streams from sediment and, and this sediment is like you like you mentioned after it rains and so why is that well it's because of large construction sites or whether it's commercial or residential and it is illegal it is against the law it's against regulations that protect our, our water for the sediment to leave the site of a construction so they're tearing up so, all the trees, they're tearing up all the grass, they're about to build houses and streets and all that stuff. But right now they got giant mounds of dirt and rocks and sediment yep. and all this other stuff. It's, they're actually, it can't leave there? No, it's, it's not supposed to what leave do they the do? site. What are they supposed to do to keep it there? So the, there's what's called best management practices or BMPs. And these are things such as silt fences or sediment ponds or other things that retain the silt, the sediment, the dirt on site so it does not flow into a local stream or creek. And those are like those orange kind yeah. of fences. Yeah, orange, see black, correct. Right, and the ponds, I know a lot of people, um, they'll see these housing developments and think that the ponds are just kind of this feature that they put in to, you know, make it look cool, but it's actually, there's a function to it. Yeah, it, yeah, and, you know, during the construction phase, they're there, to, in theory, keep that dirt on site, 
post-construction, they're there, in, again, in theory, to keep stormwater on site because stormwater has its other set of issues. So in North Carolina, in the Triangle area in particular, we've had a lot of development. Um, population's been growing now. Booming for, development. Yeah, booming um, for many years. Um, I would suspect that developers by this time are pretty well practiced at this whole game and that they're not letting any of the sediment escape into our creeks, right? So, yeah, I'm just, sure. There's, there's a few, or not a few. There's lots of developers who are doing it correctly. However, as the old saying goes, it takes one bad apple to ruin the bunch. And um, there's a few bad apples out there. There's a site that I've been at for a handful of years now that I've, you know, I try to go out a couple times a month and just document the, the just insane amount of pollution why, why sediment. Are, why are you out there? That sounds like something that regulators working for the state government ought to be out doing. Yeah, or, or the county, or the city. Um, however, as we've talked about in this program, the Department of Environmental Quality has been seriously underfunded. Positions have been cut. Inspectors are not able to visit these sites. And so it comes down to citizens. Um, at the Riverwood development in Johnson County, which is being developed by the Fred Smith Company, that's former Senator Fred Smith, who ran for the gubernatorial uh, GOP um, candidate, against Pat McCrory when, when Pat McCrory became governor. Um, that site has chronic, chronic issues when it comes to polluting our streams. Um, they have dumped tons of sediment into our local waterways. And it's, it's astonishing just how little they are held responsible for that pollution. Is there anything that can be done to clean it up once it's in the creek? Yeah, so... One, for the first thing is is making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to to keep the sediment from leaving off-site. And, and it's not a hard issue to fix. It's really not. It's, it's, it's putting in the proper best management practices, maintaining those, and inspecting them after it rains. And if you do that, you'll have a very high rate of compliance. You will not have the, the sheer just crazy amount of sediment leaving the site that should not happen and once it's in the buffer so that area between the development in the stream or once it's in the stream then you have to go in with shovels and and do the least environmental damage you can while removing the sediment um but that's tricky so so the best case and the easiest thing to do is to keep it from going into the stream in the first place is there any hope for getting more resources uh, or stronger rules on the books to fix that in the short term? We have good rules on the books. Okay. Um, and, you know, we need more resources, of course. But we also need local delegated programs. So those programs, um, a local delegated program is a municipality such as Johnson County or the city of Raleigh or Wake County that does the inspections. They don't rely on the state to do the inspections. They are delegated. They are given the authority from the state to do those inspections themselves. For instance, in Johnson County, what we need are regulators who are willing and able to do their job right. okay. and enforce the rules. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's different county by county, too, it but um, resources are a huge key to that. Um, we're going to have to leave it there on the sediment conversation, but you're going to stick around for our panel in the next segment. Um, but first, I want to turn to some ways that you can protect and conserve water in your own homes. So NC Conservation Network's Brittany Irie spoke with Ed Buchan. He's an environmental coordinator with the city of Raleigh. He helps run the city's water and sewer systems. And this is what he had to say about water conservation. Hey, y'all. I am here with Ed Buchan, and he is the environmental coordinator for the city of Raleigh's Public Utilities Department. Ed, thank you so much for being here today to chat with us a little bit about water conservation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, today we're hoping to dive in and learn a little bit more about the drinking water here in, Wa in Raleigh and also about different ways we can conserve water here. And I wanted to start, um, start off by asking you about where we get our drinking water from in Raleigh. Is it from the Noose River or maybe it's a reservoir? Um, I'd love just to hear a little bit more about how um, our water gets to us, where it comes from and how it gets to our homes. Great question. Um, a lot of people don't realize that we get our water from two sources. The main source is Falls Lake. Uh, the bottom of Falls Lake is located in northern Wake County, but the bulk of Falls Lake watershed is actually outside of Wake County. And um, so it's, it's mainly in Granville and Durham County. 
The secondary source that we use is Lake Benson, which is located in Garner, and that is a Swift Creek Basin. So really, um, both the Swift Creek and the Falls Lake Basin are located in the larger Noose River Basin. So all of our water technically comes from the Noose River. I would love to hear from you why conserving water is so important. Well, um, as they always say, money talks. And arguably, one of the biggest benefits for water conservation is that you defer potentially massive capital projects to acquire a new water resource. They are extraordinarily expensive to develop. So right now, we've identified one potential resource, which is a new reservoir in eastern Wake County called the Little River Reservoir, which obviously, as the name would imply, we built on the Little River. And when I started, roughly 11 years ago, we were going to be beginning construction roughly now on this reservoir. And this reservoir is estimated to cost $300 million. So that's a lot of money. It's more yeah. money than I make. <laughs> and right now it has been pushed off the, the current planning horizon to roughly 2040. And that is because of the dramatic conservation efforts the city of Raleigh customers have been making since 2007. By way of example, we were using roughly 52 million gallons of water a day in 2007. Now, um, 10 years later, 110,000 people later, yeah. we're using 51 million gallons a day. So that is a, a you know, roughly a 20% increase in our service area population, and we're still using the same amount of water. And we're right now roughly around 90 gallons per capita a day, which is roughly 90 gallons per person. Um, that's not just in their house, that's just, you know, on average, which compares with, I would say, anybody in the country, Seattle, Portland, uh, we're very low in that regard. So what can folks do uh, maybe indoors to save water? Is there something simple, maybe five different things they could do in their house or more if you've got them? <laughs> in terms of domestic water use inside the house, usually the biggest consumer of water is your toilet, especially in the older house. Some of those can be up to five gallons uh, per flush. The new ones from um, many manufacturers now that are carried in the big box stores are down to 1.2. Okay. So there's a big drop there. But even if you have a, a relatively efficient toilet, um, they can still be leaking mm -hmm. and they are tricky to catch. They can leak off and on. They seem to know when you're not there and they come <laughs> out and, and, and it can um, add up to a lot of water. So checking that you can do that with some a little bit of food coloring in the tank to see if anything comes up to the bowl don't do too much i did that once and you end up with a red toilet <laughs> um so that's one way to check to see if it's leaking and there's a flapper valve in that tank very easy to fix it's like a five dollar part yeah that you can replace i think i've even replaced one of those myself yeah before, even so. i <laughs> even i've done that so um the toilet is, is is one way you can conserve water either getting a new one or making sure it's not leaking other things you can do, simply again, go on the conservation piece, just take shorter showers. Mm -hmm. um, you can also get a high efficiency um, dishwasher and a washing machine. They usually the top loading, uh, excuse me, the side loading washing machines use less water than they did um, not that long ago. So upgrading that, a lot of people use a lot of laundry. Um, if you're like me, you got a kid and it, it happens a lot. Um, so, you know, using a, a water efficient uh, washing machine can, can drop your bill quite a bit. And, and any leaks that you might have um, are also something you can, you can address either with a new faucet aerator, mm -hmm. a new faucet. Again, I'm not a handyman. I was able to replace my own faucet. So those things can add up. I mean, if you're talking about a gallon an hour, that's roughly you know, 700 some gallons a month. So I'm thinking back um, when I was growing up, I remember seeing um, and learning about ways I could conserve water. And one of those really simple ways was turning off the faucet when you're brushing your teeth. Um, so I know that's one very simple way. Yep. Um, changing the faucets, if you've got someone in your household that seems like they can handle that, I, I couldn't, but I know that I've got friends who could. Um, those are definitely other great ways I think that I've heard about. But I don't know if there's anything else as simple as just turning the water off um, when you're brushing your teeth. That's an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and seemingly a lot of the a lot of the kids know that now. Um, and for the guys out there shaving, same thing, you know, um, turn the water off. And that's the easy way to do it. Yeah. 
Is there any other outdoor tips? Um, I know some people might have um, a rain barrel that they might use. Um, if you've got a garden you're trying to keep watered, um, I'm assuming that might be a great way to conserve water as well. Yeah, r rain barrels um, are obviously really useful in, in, in getting water for gardens. Maybe not enough for a whole yard, mm -hmm. but certainly for a garden. I have a small garden and it would, it would be plenty for that. Um, but there's, but there's also a program that the city stormwater group has, which is a cost share program to put a cistern in your, in your property. So if there's room to do that, you can actually have a cistern and, and then you can have a lot of water. So you'd be draining it, um, from all sorts of, uh, impervious services. So, um, that's certainly something that we were trying to promote and, and encourage people to do, but, but we always say it's your stormwater, so you might as well use it. So if there's ways you can capture that stormwater on your property, whether it's a rain barrel or something else, um, go ahead and do that. And you can use that water for outdoor plantings. Um, like I said, I have a small garden that rain barrels is certainly sufficient for. That's great. Is there any, um, you mentioned some programs, but is there anything um, like the city would give out, like a water efficient faucet or shower head or something like that? Is there anything that the city would offer to folks? Good question. In fact, we do offer water conservation kits to anybody, any utility customer that requires one or asks for one, we'll give it to them, no charge. We also have a shower head swap out program. So if you are remodeling a bathroom or whatever and you have an old shower head, um, we bring it to us and we'll give you a free water efficient one. That's great. And does the conservation kit, did you, um, does that cost anything or is that something you can just? All yours. Oh, well, thank you for coming. I think there's a lot of really simple tips that folks can take in um, to their house and start doing those right away. So we appreciate you and thanks for listening. Sure. All right. Thank you, Brittany. We are headed for a break, but when we come back, we'll be joined our, by our policy panel to talk about the latest environmental news coming out of the North Carolina legislature. Stick around. Welcome back. We are on to our final segment of the hour. Everything's going by so fast. Um, joining us for this one is our panel. We've got Matthew Starr, who has stuck around all day with us. Matthew, hello. Hey, thanks for having me again. And we've also got Brooks Pearson from the Southern Environmental Law Center. Hi. And Jamie Cole from North Carolina Conservation Network. Hi, Jamie. Hey there. Um, they are, they gaveled in Friday and they're getting underway with some business today, I think, or tomorrow. What's uh, happening, Brooks? That's right. Today they had a skeleton session, which means they gaveled in and gaveled back out. Tomorrow we hear there will be a no vote session at one o'clock and this is the House. The Senate meets this afternoon at three. Uh, the Speaker staff says that uh, there will be vetoes, override votes on Thursday, and that the new redistricting maps will get votes on Friday and Monday. All right. Veto override votes, that means garbage juice. It does. So we've, we've talked extensively on this show about uh, H-576, which is um, the, the bill that would allow landfills to employ some technology um, to spray the juice at the bottom of the waste sites into a giant fan slash snowblower and it becomes a mist that just blows everywhere. I'm, re I'm really happy that you're here, Brooks, because you essentially coined the term garbage juice through a snowblower. So um, tell us, just a recap, I mean, anything I missed with that? Okay, sure. Um, the, the scary thing about this is we don't know how bad it is. There is a technology, you can go to aerosolization.com to see a picture of why I call this a snowblower blowing garbage juice because it really does look like a snowblower. They take the liquid and they blow it out and supposedly um, anything that's bad in it goes back into the liquid droplets into the lined area of the landfill and that particles that blow up in the air are perfectly harmless. However, we have no science to back that up. There's no data, there's no modeling. Scientists have reached out to me in recent weeks from all over the country telling me what a bad idea this is and that tiny particles like bacteria and viruses would almost certainly be in those aerosolized particles. We have no idea how far they could travel, um, but it is definitely an environmental justice issue um, because of the neighborhoods around landfills, and we're very concerned about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's shocking to me that during the entire process of passing this bill in the first place, there was no input from the scientific community um, in support of this bill. You would think that anybody kind of pushing this technology would want to support it with 
evidence and facts, but that's not the case. That's right. We reached out to a lot of science scientists at universities and at regulatory agencies and were unable to find anyone willing to say that this was an, a good idea. Um, we learned today that Republic Services, which runs many of the landfills in North Carolina, put out a press release yesterday stating that um, this technique is not a viable alternative for our liquids management in North Carolina and that they have no plans for its future use or application. So Wait, that's, that's, that's huge news. That's good news. So the scientific community is not in support of this, and the folks running the landfills or the solid waste disposal areas, a major one, is not in support of this. Um, okay. Yeah, that statement's significant because Republic Waste Services were the ones who presented this technology to a panel to begin with. So the fact that they're coming out and saying this today is very significant in terms of, of if we should have a bill that allows aerosolization. Y'all, why are we doing this? Is it, I That's mean, so really it's vetoed, it's vetoed right now. So if they did nothing at the legislature, we don't have to deal with this, right? That's right. We have been unable to determine why we're doing this. The only thing we can guess is that it's politics and that there are certain individuals who really want this to happen. Um, With a financial gain. Exactly. So where, so where does it go? What does it look like? Thursday they're going to vote on this, possibly. Um, what do we expect? I honestly don't know what to expect. We're hoping that we can sustain the veto, but with a supermajority, a veto-proof majority, it's possible that they will override it, and we'll have to fight this um, in, in another way. And the supermajority super issue hits on the redistricting issue. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Um, I want to move to another uh, huge issue that I think is going to be taken up during this session. It's uh, Bill H-162. Jamie, what is it all about? Yeah, essentially it's just the legislature usurping power from other agencies as usual, but um, it's a terrible regulatory reform bill that's awaiting a House vote. Um, it's going to essentially block agencies from adopting uh, rules with five-year aggregate cost of $100 million. It may sound like a lot, but there's plenty of uh, situations that um, could come up that we're, we would hope our agency would have the authority to, to um, put some rules in place to protect our health and environment. Um, so um, the 100, 000, $100 million uh, uh, ban does not take into consideration cost-benefit. So essentially, agencies would be banned from putting a, an important rule in place simply because it has a cost, but not taking into consideration the benefit could be more. Uh, this bill would also require a 60% supermajority vote um, if uh, with a five, if there is a $10 million um, aggregate cost over five years. That super that, that's not $10 million. That's nothing. Right. And so um, it's essentially saying that um, these agencies, including DPI, DHHS, DEQ, DOJ, uh, would have to go through several hurdles um, before being able to put something in place to protect our health and environment. Um, and, and it goes beyond. I mean, this is not just an environmental concern. No, not at all. So there are uh, several different uh, rules that are put into place by agencies, including uh, Read to Achieve, or there are policies put into place by agencies that exceed $100 million, in including Read to Achieve, immunizations, um, uh, tolls, uh, 911 board rules, etc. So um, the legislature uh, is definitely impeding on the um, ability for our agencies to do their jobs. Immunizations and reading to kids? Yes. So the agencies could still, we could still have these regulations, but they would have to, we would have to get the legislature to approve them. And the way it's supposed to work is the legislature makes rules, makes laws, rather, statute, and the agencies write the rules that implement the statute. So The agencies also have the experts that are willing exactly. and able to write these rules, not the legislature. So Civics the 101 right here. Yeah. Legislature's reaching down into the agency to take away an authority that it makes a lot more sense for the agency to have. Well, it seems like the legislature, it, they're just creating a lot of work for themselves, right? Why would they want to do that? I don't know. I imagine they're trying to catch something like the Jordan Lake rules, which would be caught by this, um, but they're inadvertently going to catch a lot of rules that I don't think they honestly would want to have anything to do with. Um, 
do they really want to start getting into the nitty-gritty of our immunization rules, for example? Um, and we're talking about unforeseen emergency situations. Um, there's an also another um, provision in this bill that would prohibit uh, our agencies from adopting rules that are stricter. Well, there's already a law that prohibits environmental regulations that are stronger than the federal rules. Um, this would include um, serious and unforeseen uh, situations uh, that used to be an exception. Now, any emergency situation that occurred, our agency would be severely limited um, even more than they already are. And I mean, the legislative process, just by its very nature, takes more time. So if you're talking about an emergency situation, it's, it's they're tying the hands of the executive branch that are administrative experts from responding to an emergency. Exactly. That's and if it's the time between a long session and a short session, we could be talking about something occurring in August and the legislature's not scheduled to come back until May. Right, because supposedly this is a part-time legislature. Exactly. Right. Um, so what's the, what's the status of 162 right now? Um, we're waiting for it to come up in the House, okay. similar to many of the – and regulatory – when was regulatory reform bills being taken? Um, we, th we think the regulatory reform bills will come up early next week, um, probably maybe a little bit of discussion later this week. 162, House Bill 162 was, the conference report was, um, the Senate conferred, confirmed it on in their last special session, and the House had it on their calendar but did not take it up. So it's in the, the ball is in the House's court. And this is something that they've, it's been in their court before and they have not wanted to play ball. That's right. The conference report is, report is almost identical to the bill that the Senate rejected, I mean, that the House rejected from the Senate earlier this session. Okay. Um, in other regulatory reform news, H56 is pending, right? Do we know what's going to be in that, Matthew Brooks? We don't know exactly what's going to be in it. We're waiting to see the conference report. There are a lot of bad provisions still in play. Um, from several different bills throughout the session. One is the uh, removing the ban on plastic bags in the Outer Banks. That one is particularly egregious because it is working. Um, sea turtles who nest in the Outer Banks cannot tell the difference in a jellyfish, which is their food source, and a plastic bag. The Outer Banks uh, plastic bag ban is very, very popular. Every town um, and county and the tourism board and the chamber have all passed resolutions stating that they like the ban, they don't want it taken away. So it's a case where the sponsors of the bill or the representatives representing these people who clearly don't want this ban lifted, um, it makes you question whether they're listening to their constituents or to moneyed interests. Right, that's one we've talked about on the show before and keep seeing it pop up kind of different places. Um, there was another bill um, related to kind of regulatory reform in a sense. It was Senate Bill 16. Matthew, what, what happened with that one? Yeah, so this is another bill that the governor has vetoed, um, which was the right move. Senate Bill 16 is, is not a good bill. Um, one particular part of that bill is a section that get, that did not get much attention during the process, which that section would give eminent domain authority to oil pipelines that originate from outside of North Carolina. And what eminent domain means is that a pipeline, an oil pipeline throughout the country documented just how big of a pollution source and a danger these pipelines are. An oil pipeline could take private property for the benefit of the public, which th it's not, let's be clear. Um, and so by vetoing this bill, it's, it's a win not only for clean water, but it's a win for property rights, which is it's very important. Uh, the current rule states that oil pipelines do not have eminent domain for projects that originate from outside of North Carolina. So just like we talked about the ACP in, in the previous segment, um, if we had an oil pipeline coming from South Dakota or North Dakota or where, wherever that wanted to come through North Carolina, they could take private property. Do we know whether um, the natural gas Atlantic Coast Pipeline has eminent domain authority in North Carolina? I know I'm just kind of throwing that out of nowhere, but okay. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, is that going to come up on Thursday? Is that veto override vote going to come up? Do we expect? We've just heard that veto overrides are coming up on Thursday. There's several bills that have been vetoed. We have not heard which ones will and will not be taken up. 
Um, we'll have to wait and see. All right. So we alluded to another problem earlier in this segment, and that is, you know, the supermajority in the legislature has a lot of power, um, and they are a supermajority in part or entirely because of um, gerrymandered districts throughout the state of North Carolina that have been ruled unconstitutional. Um, and now there's a, a court-ordered redistricting plan. What's the latest on that? The, um, this afternoon at 4, there are hearings across the state on the new maps. The new maps were released, I believe, late Sunday evening. Um, the court has ordered the new maps to be approved by September 1st, and we'll see if the maps that they uh, agree on by that time or that pass through the legislature uh, are acceptable to the court. Well, all right. <laughs> A lot, a lot coming this week. Um, I think by the time that we are back a month from now, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Um, so everybody keep an eye on. Um, yeah, and it's it's not too late to take action. Um, call your representative. Call your, your state senator and tell them to sustain these, these vetoes. Um, tell them you don't want an oil pipeline coming through North Carolina. Tell them you don't want these other terrible provisions and make your voice heard. Tell them you don't want garbage juice sprayed into the neighborhoods around the landfill near you. Exactly. Yeah. Ask them to support the, the veto. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. We are officially out of time. This has been The Dirt with Brian Powell. I want to thank our many guests for the contributions to today's program. Thanks to Conservation Network's Mike Linto for his help producing our water conservation story. Special thanks to WSHA's production staff, Nicole Giami, Jessica Graham, Derek Cooper. Uh, please join us again every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon on WSHA-FM. This program is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network and will rebroadcast this Saturday at 10 a.m. Be sure to check out The Dirt FM on Twitter for links to the show, bonus content, updates on the stories that we covered here today. Um, and that's about it. WSHAFM. It's public radio for North Carolina and listeners <laughs> around the world. We're out.